recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christogony.org, and this is Christogony Saturdays. Today is Saturday, November 15th, 2014. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. For the people who are accustomed to listening to Christogenia streams on the website, stream two is down. So if you try to switch to that stream tonight, it will not operate. There's a um, technical problem with the server configuration that has to be addressed, hopefully tomorrow morning. In the last segment of our presentation of Martin Luther's on the Jews and their lies, presenting most of chapter 11 of Luther's essay, we saw the reformer turn from arguing against the Jews on biblical grounds to making a list of recommendations for the princes of Germany as to what should be done about the Jews. Luther had been describing Jewish treachery in Europe throughout his essay, how long they had been poisoning the water supplies, kidnapping and murdering Christian children, how they practiced the occupation of physician to go about poisoning unsuspecting Christians, along with many other heinous crimes. But he also discussed how the Jews bragged in his time, about being the masters of Europe, holding Europeans as slaves through their command of usury. Of course, usury had forever been forbidden to Christians on sound religious principles. So the Jews had always had a monopoly on usury because they never really practiced the religion which they had usurped over the centuries before and during the time of Christ. Luther began this chapter of essay by asking, what shall we do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? He then listed seven things which he believed must be done in order to protect Christendom from these devils. He advised that their synagogues and schools should be burned to a point where not a trace of them should be found. He advised that the houses of Jews should be razed and destroyed and that they should be forced to live in the open or in crude shelters such as barns like the gypsies do. He advised that all their prayer books and all their Talmudic writings be taken from them. Luther did not say that they should be destroyed. In fact, even if we extinguished all the Jews and all of their writings, we should probably save a copy of the Talmud just to see what the devil is really like. Luther did not go that far to say that they should be destroyed, Although other men, centuries before Luther, realized that these books were evil and Talmud burnings had occurred elsewhere as early as 13th century France. He advised that Jewish rabbis be forbidden to teach under penalty of death. He advised that all safe conduct for Jews on the roads of Germany be abolished. 
which would in effect make Jews free targets for the German people. Luther went so far as to suggest that people should even gather against Jews on the highways, ostensibly to execute that justice which the Jews deserved. He advised that all currency and precious metals be taken from the Jews and that they be barred from usury. However, with this, Luther suggested that the funds be used to award Jews who would convert to Christianity. Luther's believed that there could be good Jews and that Jews could be Christians has already, even by his time, caused much more harm than good, especially since Luther had taken a lot of his fallacious arguments against the Jews from Jews. Fallacious because they are all based on the premise that the Jews are actually the Israelites of the Old Testament in the first place. From the Middle Ages all the way up to today, Hagees and Olsteins and other Jews have been destroying Christianity by pretending to be Christians where they rapidly rise to the top because Christians wrongly believe that the Jews have some magical religious authority simply for being Jews. This is a complex problem for which the reasons are quite difficult to quantify, but it is evident in history and even in Luther's own writing that Jews converted to Christianity were rapidly elevated through the medieval Christian churches. Finally, Luther advised that Jews be forced to work at honest and hard labor, as most Christians are accustomed to doing. With this, Luther invoked Genesis chapter 3, that the children of Adam should be toiling at hard labor for their bread, as God commanded Luther noted that the Jews did not do this, however, but Luther never realized why. He never suspected that the Jews are certainly not the children of Adam, as even Christ himself had professed. Luther took the lies of the Jews for granted, even against the admonitions of Christ. At the end of chapter 10 of his essay, Luther professed that Christians should have slaughtered the Jews. He went so far as to suggest that Christians failed because they did not slaughter the Jews, where he was speaking first about the early persecutions of Christians, which were conducted by or which were conducted at the instigation of the Jews, and he said, so we are even at fault in not avenging all this innocent blood of our Lord and of the Christians which they shed for 300 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. And the blood of the children they have shed since then, which still shines forth from their eyes and their skin. Indeed, Christians do owe the Jews a holocaust. It is the promise of the Bible 
that such a debt shall be settled once and for all. Martin Luther simply couldn't see it because he was not able to identify the parties involved. However, Luther stopped short himself of saying that such an extermination of the Jews should be actually carried out. And he certainly understood that such vengeance was reserved to God. Such vengeance was within the providence of God and not of man, which is also the teaching of Scripture. So Luther pleaded that no physical harm be done to the Jews, yet he advised that Jews throughout Germany be stripped bare and naked in response to their treachery against Christians. In the end, according to Scripture, because Christians did not follow Luther's advice, it'll be the Christians that are stripped bare and naked. Look at us. Looking at us today, we are on our way. Adolf Hitler was the first German ruler in 400 years to attempt to implement the policies of Martin Luther towards the Jews, although he did not implement them completely. Martin Luther would have been much more severe against the Jews than Adolf Hitler was. Like Luther, Hitler mistakenly thought that there could be at least some good Jews, and therefore thousands of Jews were unmolested in Hitler's Germany. Hitler had respect for property rights, even those of Jews who did not, at least openly, or who did not get caught in Jewish subterfuge against the German people. Over 5,000 Jews were thriving peacefully in Berlin alone at the end of the war. There were even some Jews or part Jews in Hitler's government and military. Yet Jews who acted criminally or against the interests of the German people were rounded up and sent to concentration camps where they were made to work. And Hitler's ultimate plan for the Jews was that they be resettled outside of Germany. Like Luther, Hitler never wished them physical harm, but only that Germany be left to the Germans. Martin Luther believed that the Jews were the people of the Old Testament, yet he understood their truly evil nature the truly evil nature of their character through his own observation of their works. Adolf Hitler, if we actually read his writings and dismiss all of the Jewish lies about the man, is seen to have also held the mistaken notion that the Jews were the people of the Old Testament. However, Hitler has a better excuse than Luther because Hitler was never a theologian. Yet Hitler also understood the true evil nature of Jewish character through his own observations of the Jewish people in Austria and Germany. Hitler also understood, although he was 
he never knew why he was correct, that Christ could not have been a Jew because his nature was that of an Aryan. Hitler properly saw Christ as an anti-Jew and was himself a close follower of the actual doctrines of Christ upon which National Socialism was based. Most importantly, Luther understood that the protection granted Jews in medieval Christian society fully afforded the Jews the opportunity that they needed to completely undermine that society. Nearly a hundred years before Hitler, Wilhelm Marr understood that undermining to have already taken place, and it had. Marr anticipated an inevitable clash between Germans and Jews with the Jewish undermining of German society, and Hitler was the fulfillment of Marx's vision. Lutherans failed Luther from the beginning by not following the advice of the man they pretend to follow. If German Christians had truly followed Christ, and if they had heeded Luther's advice concerning the Jews, we would never have heard of Wilhelm Marr or Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler's Germany was the result of centuries of Jewish subterfuge in Germany and what was basically the next to last stand against the Jewish plot for world domination described in this essay by Martin Luther. As Luther had said where he advised that all Jewish houses be burned, this will bring home to them the fact that they are not masters in our country, as they boast, but that they are living in exile and in captivity as they incessantly wail and lament about us before God. If Lutherans had only done so, perhaps there wouldn't have been a World War II. And now the Jews are masters in Germany, just as they are masters in the United States and Britain and every other Western country. Here we are going to proceed with chapter 11 of Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, repeating the last paragraph of our prior segment, as it is necessary to understand the context of, subse of the subsequent portions which we shall present here. I hear it said that the Jews donate large sums of money and thus prove beneficial to governments. Yes, but where does this money come from? Not from their own possessions, but from that of the lords and subjects whom they plunder and rob by means of usury. Thus the lords are taking from their subjects what they receive from the Jews. The subjects are obliged to pay additional taxes and let themselves be ground into the dust for the Jews so that they may remain in the country, lie boldly and freely, blaspheme, curse, and steal 
Shouldn't the impious Jews laugh up their sleeves because we let them make such fools of us and because we spend our money to enable them to remain in the country and to practice every malice? Over and above that, we let them get rich on our sweat and blood while we remain poor and they suck the marrow from our bones. If it is right for a servant to give his master or for a guest to give his host ten florins annually, and in return to steal one thousand florins from him. Then the servant or the guest will very quickly and easily get rich, and the master or the host will soon become a beggar. The history of Jews. In the medieval period, summed up by Martin Luther. Presenting this paragraph last week, we cited several passages from Proverbs, warning of princes who accept gifts, that the acceptance of gifts would lead to the undermining of the kingdom. To these, we added the following passage from Isaiah chapter 1. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone that loves gifts and follows after reward. They judge not the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come unto them. It's amazing that the people who believe errantly that the Jews are the people of the Old Testament, as the Jews claim to be, can't read Isaiah chapter 1, verses, verse 23, and figure out that the Jews are not the Israelites of old. The Jews are the people that did this to the Israelites of old, that gifted the ancient kings and overturned and corrupted that kingdom just like they have every other kingdom they've been allowed into ever since. That even the, the, the brightest of minds can't, reach back in that Bible and actually read it and see the pattern. The Jews, the people that we call Jews today, who are not Judah, but are of the synagogue of Satan, according to Christ, those people are they who infiltrated and overturned ancient Israel, just like the Proverbs warn, just like Isaiah states actually happened. When rulers and governments accept gifts, and especially gifts from aliens, they are immediately suspect of corruption. Jews give gifts for one reason, in order to ingratiate and corrupt so that later they may enslave the recipients. This has now been the state of Western governments for 200 years, and they have all long been undermined in this fashion. Luther described it, and nobody listened. The Bible supports it, and nobody read it. To continue with Martin Luther, 
And even if the Jews could give the government such sums of money from their own property, which is not possible, and thereby buy protection from us and the privilege publicly to free and freely to slander, blaspheme, vilify, and curse our Lord Jesus Christ so shamefully in their synagogues, and in addition to wish us every misfortune, namely, that we might all be stabbed to death and perish with our Haman, and we'll comment on that briefly in a moment, with our Haman, emperor, princes, lords, wife and children, this would really be selling Christ our Lord, the whole company of Christendom, together with the whole empire and ourselves, with wife and children, cheaply and shamefully. What a great saint the traitor Judas would be in comparison with us. Indeed, if each Jew, as many as there are of them, could give 100,000 florins annually, we should nevertheless not yield them for this the right so freely to malign, curse, defame, impoverished by usury a single Christian. That would still be far too cheap a price. How much more intolerable is it that we permit the Jews to purchase with our money such license to slander and curse the whole Christ and all of us, and furthermore, reward them for this with riches to make them our lords, while they ridicule us and gloat in their malice. That would prove a delightful spectacle for the devil and his angels, over which they could secretly grin like a sow grins at her litter, but which would indeed merit God's great wrath. And of course, Luther is very succinctly describing the pattern that the Jews used to subvert medieval Europe. They gained the favors of princes, kings, counts, dukes, the entire nobility by loaning them money money which didn't even belong to them. They came into Europe impoverished. They got that money from Christians and that gold and that silver through illicit means because, as Luther describes, they sure as hell never worked for it. And Thomas Aquinas attests to that also. ingratiating our rulers with their money, they were basically given a license to feed like hordes of parasites off of the body of Christ, off of the Christian people of Europe. And Martin Luther describes that well. Today we can look back anybody who understands the history of Europe in the last 300 years, can look back and see that Martin Luther was absolutely correct. Through usury and the ability to buy protection from corrupted European nobles, the Jews have been able to completely 
undermine a formerly Christian society. Lutherans, as well as Christians everywhere, should be ashamed of what has become of their heritage. They did far worse than Judas Iscariot by selling themselves out to the Jew. As Luther warned, this began by allowing the Jews to practice usury in Christian lands. As we have previously cited in his ongoing presentation, Thomas Aquinas, a man that the Roman Catholic Church of the 14th century called a saint. Thomas Aquinas had said over 200 years before Martin Luther that the Jews seemed to have nothing except what they acquired through the depravity of usury. Now this reference to Haman, and we see George Washington basically made a very similar reference to Haman. And however wrongly, because it is wrong, because the Book of Esther is basically a romantic fantasy, a romantic novel, probably written around the end of the 3rd or the 2nd century B.C. I don't have a, a, a grip on it because the book is so non-historical. If it were historical, I, I imagine since the, the, the history of Persia in the time that it supposedly covers is very well documented to us that we would be able to um, to find corroboration for the Esther story in ancient history, and we certainly cannot. And there's no Esther in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there's no reference to Esther in any later biblical, biblical writing. No quotes of Esther or allusions to Esther anywhere in the New Testament. Josephus accepted it. I would write that off as part of the leaven of the Pharisees. However wrongly, the Haman character from the Esther story became a heroic symbol for those who would take a stand against the Jews. We see it in Luther. We see it in Washington. However, the story, the Esther story, which we should despise as being counted as part of Scripture, does fit the historic pattern which we see among the Jews almost perfectly, that the Jews always managed to prevail by corrupting the ruler of one nation or another. And that's really what the Esther story represents. In the case of Haman, it was the whore, because she was basically a whore, named Esther, who seduced the Persian king into a marriage, which, if it actually happened, was forbidden by the custom and the religion of both the parties involved. The Persian kings, if we read Herodotus, 
were unable by their own customs and laws to marry outside of their race. The real Israelites, if, if we understand the Old Testament, weren't to give their daughters in marriage freely to people of foreign nations. So basically, in biblical terms, Esther's a whore. But when we look at the pattern set by the book of Esther and the history of these people that call themselves Jews today, they do things like that time and time again throughout history. So the reference to Haman, even though the character is almost certainly fictional, the reference to Haman fits very well. He is an icon for those who would stand against Jewish treachery and subterfuge. Back to Martin Luther. In brief, dear princes and lords, those of you who have Jews under your rule, if my counsel does not please you, find better advice so that you and we all can be rid of the unbearable, devilish burden of the Jews, lest we become guilty sharers before God in the lies, the blasphemy, the defamation, and the curses which the mad Jews indulge in so freely and wantonly against the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, his dear mother, all Christians, all authority, and ourselves. And Luther's right in this. As Paul explained in Romans chapter 1, approving of sinners, one, just become, one becomes just as liable for their sin as if one committed the sin himself. Likewise, the Apostle John tells Christians that even speaking to welcome in the second epistle of John, even speaking to welcome those who reject Christ, one takes a share in his evil works. If you If you accept the persons of the Jews, according to Scripture, Romans chapter 1, more obliquely in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and 6, and in 2 John, verses 9 to 11, you take a share in their evil works you become just as guilty of their blasphemy, their defamation, the curses, the treachery against Christians, the, the, the wicked things that they do to Christians, to the goyim. You take a share in all of that because you accepted the persons of the Jews. And that's the scripture. And it's very clear in scripture. In 2 John, it's explicit. Luther goes on to warn the princes of Germany. 
do not grant them protection, safe conduct, or communion with us. Do not aid and abet them in acquiring your money or your subjects' money and property by means of usury. We have enough sin of our own without this, dating back to the papacy, and we add to it daily with our ingratitude and our contempt of God's word and all his grace. So it is not necessary to burden ourselves also with these alien, shameful vices of the Jews, and over and above it all, to pay them for it with money and property. And Luther understood that by accepting those who reject Christ, we show contempt for Christ himself, because he did not accept those people. Let us consider that we are now daily struggling with the Turks, which surely calls for a lessening of our sins and a reformation of our life. With this faithful counsel and warning, I wish to cleanse and exonerate my conscience. And the history of the Turks, well, in, in my own estimation, the history of the Turks it is one of the um, signal proofs that even though we esteem white people to be the most intelligent, most creative, most able people of creation, or, or people on the planet, let's put it that way, they're incredibly dull and short-minded when it comes to history. The Turks were a very real threat to Martin Luther's Europe. They assured themselves a foothold in Europe, in the once Christian Balkans primarily, and an ability to strike deep into Central Europe when they won the Battle of Kosovo in 1389, defeating the white Christian Serbs. Before that, they had taken most of Greece, most of the former Byzantine Empire, most of the Levant, and they had taken it from white Christians who were in, in many of those places and, and from Arab Muslims in the others. They took Anatolia from white Christians. Kosovo was only 154 years before Luther wrote this essay. But it was only 90 years before Luther wrote this essay that white Christian Constantinople fell to the Turks. Most of Greece had fallen before Constantinople itself. After nearly... 200 years of fighting, all of Serbia was subjugated by the Turks in 1540. That was only three years before Luther wrote this essay. After Kosovo in 1389, for nearly 200 years, the Bosnians and Croatians, the original Bosnians, had resisted the Turks. 
until the Turks were finally defeated in 1595. So that was going on during Luther's life. During most of this time, the Turks also, this 200 years, the Turks also occupied Hungary, and parts of Hungary were under Turkish rule until the early 18th century. I think it was 1712. The Turks and their non-Christian successors possess many of the once Christian lands of the East to this very day. Where they do not remain in possession of the land, they still left behind a strong Mongol and Arabic genetic impression to as a time bomb to continually erode the white populations wherever they subjected Christian lands. The Turks were fighting at sea with the Spaniards and the Venetians into the mid-16th century until as late as 1538, which is almost this very time since this essay is being written in 1543. Throughout the 16th and 17th centuries, beyond Luther's life by a hundred years, the Turks made war against the Habsburg dynasty in Austria. Most of that war was waged in Hungary. They occupied Budapest. During this time, the Turks also waged consistent warfare against the principalities of Wallachia, Moldova, where they also made war against the Poles, and the Poles were victorious. The Turks were repelled by the Poles again in the 1670s. Not that Poland is innocent, because Poland harbored Jews for 500 years before the rest of Europe gave the Jews emancipation. The Turks had Vienna itself under siege for several years in the 1680s and were finally repelled from Central Europe in 1699 when the Habsburgs defeated them and drove them out of Hungary. But Turkish designs were still not exterminated. The Turks fought at least six major wars with Christian Russia from the late 17th century all the way up to the early 19th century. The modern-day immigration of Turks into Europe is only an extension of all of these wars. It's only an extension of a thousand years of Turkish, Turkic bellicosity against Christianity. Because it started in the East. And the Turks crossed the Euphrates in the 11th century. And they've been forcing their way west ever since. They still haven't given up. What would Luther think that today Berlin is for all practical purposes becoming a Turkish Muslim city? 
And the Turks themselves did nothing to conquer it. Today there are close to 200,000 Turks in Berlin by official estimates. But some respectable sources put the real figure at closer to 500,000. That would be one in seven Berliners. The Turks did none of this on their own. The Jews of Europe did it for them. There's a wealth of evidence. First, that Jews were actually behind the earlier Mongol and Turkic invasion of Europe and the destruction of Christian Byzantium. There's a wealth of evidence that Jews assisted their cause then and even may have instigated it. And there's a bigger wealth of evidence, and by their own admission, Jews are behind the Islamic, Turkic, Arabic immigration into Europe today. The Jews are doing this. At the same time, the Jew has hypnotized whites so that most of them now do not even perceive the threat that the Jews and their Islamic invaders represent. The Mongol-Turkic Islamic wars against Christians are still ongoing. The Jew is the Satan pulling the strings behind the Islamic hordes. And Christians are too stupid to know it because they get all their news from the Jews. Martin Luther, talking about the struggle with the Turks in his time, would be absolutely appalled to see a quarter million or a half million Turks in Berlin. Berlin alone. That's not counting the rest of Germany. He'd think, well, we lost the Turkic Wars. He'd swear. If Martin Luther could walk through Berlin right now, he would think that the Turks conquered Europe. Sometime after he died. It's incredible. Back to Luther. And you, my dear gentlemen and friends, who are pastors and preachers, I wish to remind very faithfully of your official duty so that you too may warn your parishioners concerning their eternal harm. As you know how to do. Namely, that they be on their guard against the Jews and avoid them so far as possible. They should not curse them or harm their persons. However, for the Jews have cursed and harmed themselves more than enough by cursing the man, Jesus of Nazareth, Mary's son, which they unfortunately have been doing for over 1,400 years. Let the government deal with them in this respect as I have suggested. In other words, don't kill them. But 
burn their houses, burn their schools, take their books, take their money, and drive them out. But whether the government acts or not, let everyone at least be guided by his own conscience and form for himself a definition or image of a Jew. And that last line, I cannot agree with. Rather, men must be guided by the word of God and measure our fellow man by that and measure our adversaries and our, these aliens by that and not merely by our own conscience. From Jeremiah chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Only the heart guided by the word of God is secure. From Luke chapter 18. But that seed on the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So we must measure the Jews by the word of God and not by our own conscience. The word of God should tell us that Christians who embrace Jews, as Luther said earlier, despise the cross of Christ and take a share in their evil works. Therefore, it's not a matter of our conscience. Our conscience is guided by our personal perception of Jews. If one of us has one good experience or an experience which we perceive as a good experience from a Jew, perhaps the Jew in a moment of what you perceive as pity helped you out at some point in your life. you're going to vote to keep the Jew. Oh, they're good people. I know they're good people. One of them helped me out once. That's exactly what the devil wants you to believe. If they reject Christ, Christians must reject Jews. That's what we were told by our Savior. If you believe you're a Christian... You can't accept a Jew. Your conscience has nothing to do with it. So I certainly can't agree with Luther there that pastors and teachers should be given that latitude in a Christian church. No. When you lay eyes on or think of a Jew, and here Luther does a little better, you must say to yourself, Alas, that mouth which I there behold has cursed and execrated and maligned every Saturday my Lord Jesus Christ, who has redeemed me with his precious blood. In addition, it prayed and pleaded before God that I, my wife and children, and all Christians might be stabbed to death and perish miserably. And a little disgust the true nature of Jewish prayer earlier in his essay. And he's absolutely correct. But 
that one Christian who had a good experience with a Jew is going to follow his own heart if given that latitude and not believe that all Jews are evil, as Luther here is actually basically professing, even though Luther also holds out hope that there are good Jews. And he continues by saying, and he himself would, meaning the Jew that curses Christians, and would wish them dead. And he himself would gladly do this if he were able, in order to appropriate our goods. Perhaps he has spat on the ground many times in this very day over the name of Jesus, as is their custom, so that the spittle still clings to his mouth and beard. If he had a chance to spit, if I were to eat, drink, or talk with such a devilish mouth, I would eat or drink myself full of devils by the dish or cupful, just as I surely make myself a cohort of all the devils that dwell in the Jews and that deride the precious blood of Christ. May God preserve me from this. Luther thought the Jews were possessed by demons. However, Christ said that they actually descended from demons. They descended from the devil, which according to God's law, actually makes them devils. Embodied devils, not disembodied devils. When John told us to test every spirit to see whether it was from God, he was referring to embodied spirits. Luther goes on to say, we cannot help it that they do not share our belief. And I would say that it's not ours to help. They cannot help it that they do not share our belief. And that's a point which Christ made, but which Luther apparently missed, where he said, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. John 10, 26. The Jews cannot help that they don't share our belief because they're not supposed to. They're not his sheep. So they don't hear his voice. They can't help it. It is impossible to force anyone to believe However, we must avoid confirming them in their wanton lying, slandering, cursing, and defaming, nor dare we make ourselves partners in their devilish ranting and raving by shielding and protecting them, by giving them food, drink, and shelter, or by other neighborly acts, especially since they boast so proudly and despicably when we do help them and serve them that God has ordained them as lords and us as servants. For instance, when a Christian kindles their fire for them on a Sabbath or cooks for them in an inn, whatever they want, they curse and defame and revile us for it, supposing this to be something praiseworthy, and yet they live on our wealth which they have stolen from us. Such a desperate, thoroughly evil, 
poisonous and devilish lot are these Jews who for these 1,400 years have been and still are our plague, our pestilence, and our misfortune. And we'll continue with Luther. Especially you pastors who have Jews living in your midst, persist in reminding your lords and rulers to be mindful of their office and of their obligation before God to force the Jews to work, to forbid usury, and to check their blasphemy and cursing. For if they punish thievery, robbery, murder, blasphemy, and other vices among us Christians, why should the devilish Jews be scot-free to commit their crimes amongst us and against us? We suffer more from them than the Italians do from the Spaniards, who plunder the host's kitchen, cellar, chest, and purse, and in addition, curse him and threaten him with death. And, and that's a whole other dynamic that Luther mentions. It's not really um, widely known. Kings of Spain and Spanish nobility had ruled over um, much of what we call Italy. Of course, it was all separate states then during the Middle Ages. And evidently, the Spanish nobility was taking great advantage of the Italians, much like the English nobility for many hundreds of years took great advantage of the Irish and abused them. Spaniards were um, even colonizing Italy to a great degree during that time. And Italy, in Luther's lifetime, had a um, severe economic depression, which was seen, as we see here in Luther, as the fault of the Spaniards. And Luther goes on to say, thus the Jews, our guests, also treat us, for we are their hosts. They rob and fleece us and hang about our necks, these lazy weaklings and indolent bellies. They swill and feast, enjoy good times in our homes, and by way of reward, they curse our Lord Christ, our churches, our princes, and all of us, threatening us and unceasingly wishing us death and every evil. And of course, there are times when whites have oppressed each other. And very often, that's at the um, instigation of Jews on the other end. And we see that in... in um, to a great extent in the history in the history of England. Likewise, there are a lot of a lot of Murano Jews and other so called crypto Jews in Spain. I'm not saying that they were definitely the influence behind the oppression in Italy, but somehow I wouldn't be surprised. That's a, a topic that I I don't know if I'll ever have time to study. 
But the difference with the Jews is that the Jews were doing this in every nation in Europe. And especially in the East, in those nations subjugated by the Turks. The Jews were, um, and we'll discuss this, I, I pray, tomorrow on Christianity Europe with Sven Longshanks. The nations where the Turks had, had ruled the Jews seemed to be getting away with Jewish ritual murder at a much higher frequency than in Western Europe, in the Christian nations. The Jews were ritually murdering Christian children. There were, there were far more reports of that in Hungary and Romania and places where the Turks were ruling than there were in the West. Just ponder this. How does it happen that we poor Christians nourish and enrich such an idle and lazy people, such a useless, evil, pernicious people, such blasphemous enemies of God, receiving nothing in return but their curses and defamation and every misfortune which they may inflict on us or wish us? Indeed, we are as blind and unfeeling clods in this respect as are the Jews in their unbelief. To suffer such great tyranny from these vicious weaklings and not perceive and sense that they are our lords, yes, our mad tyrants, and that we are their captives and subjects. Meanwhile, they wail that they are our captives and at the same time mock us as though we had to take this from them. Meaning that the Germans really did not have to put up with Jewish mockery of Germans, of Christians, in their own German lands. But the Germans were putting up with it. For the most part, because, as Luther admitted time and again, in, in, in this paper, they were unaware of the true motives of the Jews. And their, the, the true degree of their treachery. Luther, as we've seen him express in his paper, thinks that he has discovered this Jewish treachery. He, he says, he, he utters or he wrote phrases such as, now that we are informed, meaning with his pen in this essay. And he does that because he has just come into the light of this Jewish treachery and subterfuge in Europe and these Jewish tactics, which he explains here. And he explains them rather well. But I guess he believed it because he had just discovered it, that nobody knew about it before him. And even though he has a very good grip on European history in many respects, there are also things that he seemed to have been ignorant of, such as the Talmud burnings in France in the 1300s. And Luther, what well, we have to understand it, information wasn't as... It wasn't recorded in a manner 
of encyclopedias and things like that that we have been able to compile and record it in our technology today. Luther had a much bigger challenge to learning when books were um, fairly recently been turned off of printing presses. And even with that, there's a great um, language barrier in Europe. How many, how many dialects can a man understand? So Luther had a lot of challenges that we don't even perceive. So he was evidently ignorant about some things and very much aware about some things. And, and even the, um, the Spanish oppression of Italy in the 14th, 15th, 16th centuries during the years of the Spanish Empire, even that is very little known today. So that didn't mean it didn't happen. It just means that the medieval history of Italy isn't very well understood by English speakers in the 20th century. That's just one small example from Luther's own writing of something he was aware of because it was going on in his time, but there were things that happened just a couple of hundred years before his time in neighboring nations that he didn't seem to be aware of. So he, a lot of this information that he has about the Jews, he believes, is new with his revelation. That appears to be his attitude in several places throughout this essay. He goes on to say, but if the authorities are reluctant to use force and restrain the Jews' devilish wantonness, the latter should, as we said, be expelled from the country and be told to return to their land and their possessions in Jerusalem which was actually under control of the Turks at this time, where they may lie, curse, blaspheme, defame, murder, steal, rob, practice usury, mock and indulge in all those infamous abominations which they practice among us, and leave us our government, our country, our life, and our property. Much more, leave our Lord the Messiah, our faith and our church undefiled and uncontaminated with their devilish tyranny and malice. Any privileges that they may plead shall not help them, for no one can grant privileges for practicing such abominations. These cancel and abrogate all privileges. The Jewish history in Europe since the time of Martin Luther fully vindicates Martin Luther's accusations. However, today, we just don't understand it. We, as a general population, are absolutely ignorant of it. The Jewish money power and media voice, Jewish defense groups such as the ADL, SPLC, the Masonic Lodges, and the fully infiltrated so-called Judeo-Christian denominations and countless others all run cover for history's oldest crime ring. The Jews are expert at raising great clouds of smoke with which to hide their dirty deeds behind. If we don't study history independently and, and seek original sources, because the Jews can't get rid of them, 
they can't throw out that they try to um downplay their importance and use propaganda to keep them from us. They belittle things like the Greek and Roman classics to keep them from us so that we really don't understand the ancient world. They belittle original sources so that we really don't understand the medieval period and, and other periods of our own history. And then they rewrite history and promote Jewish authors such as this Simon Shama and, and Israel Finkelstein and, and all these other devils that rewrite biblical history or rewrite, in the case of Simon Shama, who's basically a sham, his name spells it all, who rewrites English history in favor of the Jews, in favor of the Jewish agenda. They do it everywhere, and we buy it because that's what's in the bookstores. And the real histories are out there, but we don't pursue them. Continuing with Luther. If you pastors and preachers have followed my example and have faithfully issued such warnings, but neither prince nor subject will do anything about it, let us follow the advice of Christ and shake the dust from our shoes and say, we are innocent of your blood, meaning the blood of Christians who won't follow Luther's advice. For I observe and have often experienced how indulgent the perverted world is when it should be strict, and conversely, how harsh it is when it should be merciful. Such was the case with King Ahab, as we find recorded in 1 Kings chapter 20. That is the way the prince of this world reigns. I suppose that the princes will now wish to show mercy to the Jews, the bloodthirsty foes of our Christian and human name, in order to earn heaven thereby. But that the Jews enmesh us, harass us, torment and distress us poor Christians in every way with the above-mentioned devilish and detestable deeds. This they want us to tolerate, and this is a good Christian deed, especially if there is any money involved, which they have filched and stolen from us. I don't know whether any princes or pastors in any significant numbers follow Luther's advice here. It's something that I, I personally have to yet study, and I would like to, the period of German history between Luther's death and the beginning of the Thirty Years' War. That's another avenue of study which may be fruitful but which may not have been completely endeavored as of yet, is whether the Jews had any hand in Ferdinand II of Bohemia's intended suppression of the Protestants there in the 17th, early 17th century, which had instigated the Thirty Years' War of the major Catholic states of Europe against Protestant Germany. That was instigated when Ferdinand II, the Prince of Bohemia, it moved to suppress the Protestants in Bohemia. It would be interesting to see if 
how many Jews were in his court. Because Luther had listed not only Spain, which was oppressing Italy, but also Bohemia as very comfortable places for Jews in the days before his own time. Spain had a very large role in the Thirty Years' War, and it, it evidently incubated, it began in Bohemia. So Luther didn't make that connection, but it's pretty evident in his essay whether he noticed it or not. Of course, he didn't know about the Thirty Years' War because he died just a short time after this essay was written. What we poor preachers, I'm sorry, what are we poor preachers to do meanwhile? In the first place, we will believe that our Lord Jesus Christ is truthful when he declares to the Jews who did not accept him but crucified him, you are a brood of vipers and children of the devil. This is a judgment in which his forerunner, John the Baptist, concurred, although these people were his kin, and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, but Luther is citing Matthew chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 12. Now our authorities and all such merciful saints as wish the Jews well will, have, will at least have to let us believe our Lord Jesus Christ, who, I am sure, has a more intimate knowledge of all the hearts than no, do those compassionate saints. He knows that these Jews are a brood of vipers and children of the devil, that is, people who will accord us the same benefits as does their father, the devil. And by now, we Christians should have learned from Scripture as well as experience just how much he wishes us well. And it's obvious that Luther was accepting the words of Christ figuratively and not literally where identity Christians, knowing the true identity of the Jews, should accept those words of Christ literally, because in John chapter 8, Christ clearly explained that the Jews, the origin of his adversaries, was not his origin. And the Apostle John explains that again in 1 John chapter 4. This is Luther's signal biblical error. This is the, the, the reason for all of his mistakes concerning the possibility that Jews could be converted, that there could be good Jews, that he should quote over and over again Jews who converted to Christianity and, and, and suddenly wrote, voluminous commentaries on the Christian Bible. Luther seems to have no concept of the very large Edomite population in Judea outside of Herod himself. He told us time and again throughout this essay that Herod was an Edomite. But it from reading Luther's essay, you would think that Herod was the only Edomite in Judea. 
when in fact Judea had a very large Edomite population. And that's documented in the pages of Josephus. It's explained in Romans chapter 9 by Paul of Tarsus. And the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 34, reveals that same thing. And not only the words of Christ, which Luther quotes from Matthew chapter 12, but John chapter 8, Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 11, Romans chapter 9, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3. In all of these places, we see the basic denial that the Jews are Israel. In all of those places, except Romans, because Paul wrote it, Christ denied that the Jews, the people calling themselves Jews, were his kin. He denied that they were Judah in John 8, in Luke 11, in Revelation chapter 2, in Revelation chapter 3. Christ denied over and over again that the Jews, that his adversaries were Judah. You do not believe me because you are not my sheep. And Luther just missed it all. He evidently accepted the words of Christ in John chapter 8 about his father being the devil figuratively when in conjunction with Luke chapter 11, the comments of Jude and of Peter that these people are infiltrators, false brethren who were privily introduced. The comments of Paul about Jacob and Esau and the statements of Christ in the Revelation about those who say they are Judeans and are not. If they're not Judeans, then we have to go back into history and find out how they are not Judeans. So we have to look for a foreign population in Judea. And it's right in the pages of Ezekiel. It's right in Ezekiel chapter 34. And it's all throughout Antiquities, Antiquities of the Judeans, book 13. If there are Judeans who are not Judeans, as Christ explicitly states twice, we have an obligation to go back and figure out how that could be. And if there are Judeans who are not Judeans, then we have to look for that alien population where they could have come from. Who could they have been? And Luther failed to do that. He just took the words of Christ figuratively and rolled with it and still assumed that they were Israelites when Scripture denies that they are Israelites. Not only in Romans 9, not only in Revelation 2 and 3, not only in 1 John chapter 4, not only in Luke 19, in, in Luke chapter 11, I'm sorry, but also in Jude 
in Peter over and over again. That's seven witnesses right there that the Jews are not who they claim to be. To continue with Luther, I have read and heard many stories about the Jews which agree with this judgment of Christ, namely, how they have poisoned wells, made assassinations. In other words, the Jews are testifying through their actions, through their fruits, that the words of Christ are true. Made assassinations, kidnapped children, as related before. I have heard that one Jew sent another Jew, and this by means of a Christian, a pot of blood, together with a barrel of wine, in which when drunk empty, a dead Jew was found. There are many other similar stories. For their kidnapping of children, they have often been burned at the stake or banished, as we already heard. I am well aware that they deny all of this. However, it all coincides with the judgment of Christ, which declares that they are venomous, bitter, vindictive, tricky serpents, assassins, and children of the devil who sting and work harm stealthily wherever they cannot do it openly. For this reason, I should like to see them where there are no Christians, and that's not possible. The Turks and the other heathen do not tolerate what we Christians endure from these venomous serpents and young devils, nor do the Jews treat any others as they do us Christians. That is what I had in mind when I said earlier that next to the devil, a Christian has no more bitter and galling foe than a Jew. Christ pretty much told us that they were devils, and he was pretty explicit about it, and he wasn't kidding. They are devils. They are serpents. It's not that they act like devils. They act like devils because they are devils. The tree is known by its fruit. There is no other to whom we accord as many benefactions and from whom we suffer as much as we do from these base children of the devil, this brood of vipers. Luther should have only understood it literally. Now let me commend these Jews sincerely to whoever feels the desire to shelter and seed them, to honor them, to be fleeced, robbed, plundered, defamed, vilified, and cursed by them and to suffer every evil at their hands. These venomous serpents and devil's children, who are the most vehement enemies of Christ our Lord and of us all. And if that is not enough, let him stuff them into his mouth or crawl into their behind and worship this holy object. We won't elaborate on that. Then let him boast of his mercy. Then let him boast that he has strengthened the devil and his brood for further blaspheming our dear Lord and the precious blood with which we Christians are redeemed. Then he will be a perfect Christian, filled with works of mercy, for which Christ will reward him on a day of judgment together with the Jews in the eternal fire of hell. That is speaking coarsely about the coarse cursing of the Jews. Others write much about this, and the Jews know very well that it is cursing, 
since they curse and blaspheme consciously, let us also speak more subtly and, as Christians, more spiritually about this. Thus, our Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew 10.40, He who receives me receives him who sent me. And in Luke 10.16, He who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And in John 15:23, he who hates me hates my father also. In John 5:23, that all may honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him, etc. And we are throughout throughout the entire first half of Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, we criticize Luther for not simply taking the arguments of Christ and the apostles against the Jews and reiterating them, because they do very succinctly not only describe and account for Jewish behavior, but they are the most biblically sound arguments against the Jews that could be contrived. Christians using the arguments of Christ and the apostles against the Jews can't fail. Luther instead, and we criticized him for this, instead he created many sophistic arguments from the Old Testament to use against the Jews. And some of them were okay, and some of them were not. And we pointed that out. Here, at the end of his essay, he finally gets around to using the New Testament to describe those who reject Christ. And that is the soundest manner by which to refute the Jews, in my humble opinion. These are, God be praised, clear and plain words, declaring that all that is done to the honor or to the dishonor of the Son is surely also done to the honor or to the dishonor of God the Father himself. We Christians cannot have or countenance any doubt of this. Whoever denies the names and curses Jesus of Nazareth, the Virgin Mary's son, also denies the names and curses God the Father himself, who created heaven and earth. But that is what the Jews do. And if you say that the Jews do not believe or know this, since they do not accept the New Testament, I reply that the Jews may, not, may know or believe this or that. We Christians, however, know that they publicly blaspheme and curse God the Father when they blaspheme and curse this Jesus. Tell me, what are we going to answer God if he takes us to account now or on a day of judgment saying, listen, you are a, you are a Christian. You are aware of the fact that the Jews openly blasphemed and cursed my son and me. You gave them opportunity for it. You protected and shielded them so that they could engage in this without hindrance or punishment in your country, city, and house. Tell me, what will we answer to this? And, and if Luther, 
could see the um, the Missouri Synod of Lutheranism today, he would be appalled because they do all of this and more, falling over themselves to plead to please the Jews, along with the rest of what is still called Protestantism, but what hasn't been Protestant or Christian even in 200 years. Of course, we accord anyone the right not to believe by neglecting privately. This we leave to everyone's conscience. And there we go again. If you're a Christian, you should simply believe the words of Christ in relation to the Jews and the words of the apostles, and you won't be caught in that quandary. If Christians believe the words of Christ concerning the Jews, Christianity today would have an entirely different face. And Luther concludes the chapter by saying, but to parade such unbelief, meaning unbelief about what Luther's saying about the Jews, but to parade such unbelief so freely in churches and before our very noses, eyes, and ears, to boast of it, to sing it, to teach it, and defend it, to revile and curse the true faith, and in this way lure others to them and hinder our people. That is a far, far different story. And this is not changed by the fact that the Jews do not believe the New Testament, that they are unacquainted with it, that they pay it no heed. The fact remains that we are acquainted with it and that we cannot acquiesce in having the Jews revile it and curse it in our hearing. To this witness, to witness this and keep silent is tantamount to doing it ourselves. And that is a facet of the Hebrew law, Leviticus chapter 5. If a man hears the voice of swearing and Others it not. When he witnesses a crime, he's just as guilty for the crime. Thus the accursed Jews encumber us with their diabolical, blasphemous, and horrible sins in our own country. That concludes Luther's part 11 of the Jews on the Jews and their lies. We will be back with part 12 in the near future. Next week, I think, I think it's scheduled, it'll be Brother Ryan, Walking the Walk, part two. I will be here Friday night with a continuation of our presentation of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. Tomorrow afternoon at 2 p.m., I'll be here with Sven Longshanks, Jewish Ritual Murder, talking about some of the very same things which Martin Luther consistently references here. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you, and good night.